Well, good morning. Uh, last week we took a break from Joshua, but we're going to pick it right back up this week. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and meet me in Joshua chapter 2. Um, if you don't have your Bible and would like to use one, uh, the, the Bible's in front of you. You can find that passage on page 167. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm part of the team here at FAC. Uh, it really is a privilege to be with you. Um, if this is your first time or you're new to, to FAC, I want you to know just how much of an encouragement you are to us. Uh, and I would love the opportunity to meet you. And so after service, I'll actually be down here um, in the front. And, and we're just, like I said, I, I want to meet you uh, if you're newer here to FAC. Um, so let's go ahead and turn to God's word now. Uh, we'll be looking at the entire chapter uh, this morning, but we're going to start in just the first seven verses I'll read, uh, and then I'll pray, and we'll begin. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the, gates, when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And Lord, I pray, Father, now as we take a look at your word and we study it, Father, I recognize that the words spoken this morning are uh, from a mere man that only have the power to reach ears. So I ask, Father, that your spirit would take those words and stretch them further than the ears and into our hearts. I ask, Father, that any distractions that we may have, you would handle those. Let us focus on your good and perfect word. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Uh, my wife and I are big Disney buffs. We, we love Disney. And I actually pride myself on um, knowing useless Disney knowledge that's going to have no real impact on the world. Um, and one of those bits of knowledge that I have, something that has fascinated me over the years, is that if you were to go to Disneyland and go into the New Orleans section of Disneyland, there is a secret club hiding in plain sight. They call it Club 33. Now, club 33 was actually uh, built and designed as a place for Walt Disney himself to entertain his special VIP guests. Now, unfortunately, uh, Walt passed away about five months before the club was was opened. Um, But Disney, um, being never a company to turn down a buck, decided to open up the, the club to a very special and select limited group of people. Uh, what kind of people? Not a surprise, people with money. Um, if you want to become a member of Club 33, 
All you have to do upon applying is to pay an initiation fee of $25,000. That's just to get in. And then you have to pay annual fees, annual dues that range anywhere from $12,000 to $100,000 every year if you'd like to keep your membership. And oh, by the way, if you're interested, there's a 14-year waiting list. For some reason, the people that are on that waiting list, there is some kind of allure or draw for them to be a part of this club. They recognize that they are on the outside and they are willing to pay the price and wait the proper time to be on the inside. And while this is just an absurd example, I think the feeling or the desire to be on the inside, in any given context, is one that we're familiar with. There is a nagging curiosity in our hearts sometimes to be in, to be uh, on the inside, to be part and experience the inner circle. And if we're on the outside looking in of a particular group or club or culture or team, It's impossible not to consider what is going on in my own life right now that is keeping me out. Perhaps you're thinking I'm not rich enough to be on the inside. Perhaps I don't have the talent to make the team. Maybe I just don't have the connections at work to be a part of the inner circle. It's not a very fulfilling experience to be on the outside looking in. Perhaps you even sit here today. You've never been to FAC or you're, you're new to this whole church thing and you're on the outside and you feel like an outsider and you're confused by maybe some of the terms that we use and you're not familiar with where certain things are. And during worship, you're like, what do I do with my hands? Like what, like you're just on the outside and you feel uncomfortable even sitting here looking in. This morning, we read and we look at the story of Rahab. Rahab was perhaps one of the most outside outsiders in all of the Bible. And I would like to take our morning to look at her story. The second chapter here that we read just the first seven verses to is kind of odd because it takes a turn off of the uh, main narrative of Israel entering into the, the promised land. By way of recap, we took three weeks to look at Joshua 1. And in Joshua 1, you had God commissioning commissioning Joshua to go into the land. And then Joshua, in turn, told his people to go into the land. And you would think, we're finally going to see the people enter the land. But we don't. We see this really odd story in chapter 2. And and, and in all likelihood, if you took chapter 2 out of Joshua, the story would still make sense. This really doesn't add anything to the main narrative. It wouldn't affect it at all. But the writer has deliberately inserted this story when they didn't have to, which only shows us that it must, must have some heavy significance. So let's take a look at it. We read that before they enter the land, Joshua wants reconnaissance of the land, specifically Jericho, which was just west of the Jordan River. 
If anything, Joshua is saying, I am about to take my people into hostile territory and I want to be prepared. I want some intel. I want some information about what it is. So he, he sends two spies out secretly to scope out the city. Uh, now Jericho was actually what we would call a city state of Canaan. It was comprised, it only covered about eight or nine acres. And the population uh, wasn't more than a couple of thousand people. Um, and so it's much smaller than many people would think of a city. It's more like a, a town. But because it was a city-state, it would have a king put in place to overrule and govern this, this city. Um, and so it was much smaller. And this may have been the reason why the spies were found out. I mean, if you think about it, you look at this. These spies are terrible at their job. They, <laughs> they get in, and within one day... They're found out. Within one day, the king of Jericho is aware of their, of their presence, right? And we have no idea how the king finds out. And we have no idea why these um, spies end up in the home of a prostitute. But nevertheless, what's happening here is that they're in trouble. Their enemy pursues them. And they are now at the mercy of a complete and total stranger. Their, their own survival lies completely in the hands of Rahab. And as we see in the first seven verses, there is kind of an escalation of, of, of tension. If you're not familiar with the story, you're wondering, what's going to happen? Are they going to be found out? Because the king's men approach Rahab's home. They confront her about the spies. They say, hey, there was, men, there was two men from Israel that were here, and we've been told that they came to your house. Where are they? And we don't know where they are at this point. Then immediately the writer tells us that Rahab had hid them, and then she proceeds to lie and deceive the king's men about the spies. Then she tells the king's men that they were there, but she didn't have any idea who, who they were or where they came from, and in fact, they're already gone. And then she sends the king's men on a fool's errand, chasing after the horizon and say, they, they, they left already, but if you hurry up, you can probably catch them. You, you, better, go, you better go get them outside the city gates. Now, this in itself is, a, is dangerous for Rahab because she has just committed treason. And in that culture, if those spies are found out hiding in her home after she deceived the king's men, she would probably have been killed on the spot. It's fascinating. So when we come to the end of verse 7, which concludes the first part of our story, we're really left wondering, who is this extremely shady character, Rahab? And what on earth is her motivation? She's such a fascinating character, but oh so ambiguous. And it, and it, the whole passage is ambiguous. When we read the first part here, the passage really sparks more questions than answers. And the frustrating thing is that the writer consciously ignores these questions. It makes us feel really uncomfortable that God would use a prostitute to protect the men of Israel. And not only that, she lies and is deceitful in the process. And the writer avoids the ethical implications of this altogether. He doesn't even address it. And I think this is intentional. I think this is intentional. I think he is merely recording the events that transpired 
and refuses to comment on some of these glaring questions because that's not the point of the story. That's, that's not the message that he's trying to send. It would be easy to get hung up on these questions and completely miss the point of this chapter. In a sense, the writer's telling us, don't worry about how these events played out. This is merely a setup. I'm merely sharing you the prologue to this story so you can see how these men got in a situation where they're interacting with this outsider, Rahab. You don't need all the details. The writer is setting the stage for a far more important message. And we could go on wasting our time about the ethics behind Rahab's story, but once again, that is not the point of the passage. Too many times in our approach to Scripture, we get hung up on the question marks and these silly little questions that don't matter or have any real impact on the significance of any given passage. This would be like if my wife planned this amazing, gorgeous, gourmet meal for guests. And it's like a five-course meal, and she has spent hours like laboring in the kitchen to create this wonderful, beautiful, nutritious meal. And then I sit down, and I look at this wonderful meal, and I say, Honey, I don't really like the color of these napkins. You know, eggshell white is just not my thing, Right? If that's the case, I have missed the entire intention of my wife's preparation. I have missed the entire significance of the meal. And I would probably get slapped upside the head, right? When we study scripture, we are feasting on an amazing spiritual meal. And some of us are fixated on the napkins. Some of us are worried about the inconsequential details. And so what do we do? How do we approach scripture when there are so many questions like in our passage today? Instead of focusing on what we don't know, we need to focus on what we do know. Don't focus on the question marks. Focus on the main things and the plain things. As we continue to read chapter two, we see the main and plain thing. We see the meat We know uh, of Rahab's motivation because she tells us in the beginning of verse 8. Go ahead and look at it. I'm going to go ahead and just read through the the rest of the chapter. But I want you to focus on really 8 through 14 is the meat of this passage. Go ahead and take a look. Follow along with me as I read. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were uh, beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. 
And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the, this, the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills where the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and he shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tried this, tied the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. What do we know? We know what Rahab knows. Rahab knows three things. She mentions them in verse nine. The first one is this. I know that God has given this land to your people. It's past tense. It's a done deal. In the eyes of Rahab, she knows that it won't be long before the Canaanites occupy, uh, no longer occupy Jericho. I know that God has given this land to you. Number two, I know that we're scared of you. I know that we're scared of you. She's telling the guys, look, I've heard the murmurs. I've heard the talk of the town. And frankly, there is a terrible spirit of dread right now in Jericho because of you guys. And number three, I know because of our fear, we quiver. We we melt away at the thought of you coming in. The picture that we get here in this text is this idea of very hard ground being turned into mud by, by rain, right? It's been softened. Essentially what Rahab is saying is, hey, we have zero confidence right now. We have lost our entire spirit because of you, every single one of you. And this is absolutely fascinating because this is a complete reversal from the last time the spies went into the land. We mentioned this a few weeks ago that when the Israelites were on the doorstep of Jericho 40 years prior, Moses decided to send 12 spies into the land and 10 of them came back and said, we are like grasshoppers to them. They, there are giants in the land. We are so small and we have no confidence to go into the land. But we see that those spies couldn't be more wrong. Because Rahab confesses that the Canaanites are the ones that feel like grasshoppers in the eyes of the, in the sight of the giant Israelites. And so it begs the question, how on earth did they come to such a terrified state? Well, Rahab tells us, verse 10, 
She says, hey, we have heard what your God is capable of. We have heard about him drying up the Red Sea and the power that he had to, to bring you guys out of Egypt. And oh yeah, those two kings that you took care of east of the Jordan, we heard about how you, you destroyed them and, and, and what, you, what you did to them. This has left us with a, with a, with a crippled spirit. And then she says something remarkable in verse 11. She says, the Lord, your God, that term Lord, when you see Lord all capitalized, it's actually God's personal name that he gave to Moses, Yahweh. She's calling him by name, Yahweh, the Lord, your God. He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She's confessing your God is the true God. There reigns over everything and is all powerful. Right here, she is affirming the superiority of God's power, affirming the authority of God. And she's using Israelite terminology for it. See, Canaan had a multiple, a multitude of, uh, of man-made pagan gods. And while Rahab may not be exclusively worshiping God, what she is saying is, hey, your God is bigger than our gods. Your God is so much more powerful and so much greater. Our gods have no match or no match for your God. And I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to mess with that. And so I am taking a step of obedience and faith in helping you. This is a great illustration of what it means to be God-fearing. What she's saying is, I have so much reverence for your God that it is driving me to faith and it is driving me to, to obedience and now I am asking for mercy. And this is what's happening in verses 12 through 21. They, they create an oath. They create a, a deal, essentially. And she has crossed a very significant line. She has now left the allegiance of Jericho, and the king of Jericho and any of the gods that might be there. And she is now siding with Israel and the true one and only true God of Israel. Right. And I love this because her faith wasn't based on like cozy feelings or an emotional experience towards God, but on the facts of God, there was, there was evidence there was knowledge. It wasn't a blind faith. Rahab is saying, I know that God did this, and I know that God is capable of this. Therefore, I will have faith and obedience. It's based on evidence. But the beautiful thing is that while her faith is so elementary, she didn't need much knowledge to be able to submit to the true living God. She acted on what she did know, and the Lord saved her because of it. It was just the tiniest bit of faith. It was the tiniest bit of knowledge of God that she submitted to him. And we actually find in uh, Joshua 6, verse 25, that when Israel goes into Jericho, they honored this agreement that they had with Rahab once the city was overtaken. And when you look at this story, when you look at this character in light of the entire Bible, you find a captivating truth. And that is the fact that Rahab, the outsider, has now become Rahab, the insider. 
Rahab was once on the outside and now she is on the inside. Think about how much of an outsider Rahab is to God. First of all, she is a Canaanite, right? God had what we call a covenant with Israel. It's simply an agreement, a covenant, the term we use is an agreement between two or more parties uh, with certain conditions for both parties to obey. And so when God makes his covenant with Abraham, with Israel, he, he made an agreement that he would provide for them. He would do three things f- for them. It's very simple in this covenant. First, I'm going to provide you land. I, I will give you this land. Okay, Canaan is what it was. That's promise number one in the covenant. Number two, he, he told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. You will, be, you will have offspring and you will be a great nation. That's part of the deal. And number three, this nation would bless the entire world. Israel reaped the benefits of being in a covenant relationship with God. And Rahab, as a Canaanite, is outside of this covenant relationship. She does not belong. Not only is she outside of this covenant relationship with God, but she's actually subject to God's very own wrath because she's Canaanite. They were, these Canaanites were such a wicked people that in Deuteronomy 7, God tells the Israelites, when you go into that land, you need to destroy them all. You need to take them all out because of how wicked they are. This is my punishment on Canaan for being so wicked. They're a wicked nation. The culture, according to scripture, seemed to be beyond redemption and hope. They participated in idolatry. They practiced witchcraft. They took part in child sacrifice. And so Rahab, being associated with this evil nation, was under condemnation and destined to die. And so, in the eyes of the Israelites, Rahab is already an outsider just because she's from Canaan. But then consider her as an individual, who she is. This character has a very tragic background. Women don't become prostitutes unless there has been something significant in their life, a significant hardship in their life. Rahab's decision to sell her body for money was probably circumstantial. Imagine the pain that Rahab has been through. Imagine the hurt that she has experienced in her life. Imagine the men that have taken advantage of her. There was probably a torment in her soul. She probably lived in great poverty. And then when she speaks of her family, notice what's missing. She only talks about her parents and her siblings. There's no husband. There's no children. And in a time where a woman's value heavily relied on her offspring, she stands alone. She is at an extreme disadvantage in her world being a childless woman who is a prostitute. She's not just an outsider to the Israelites. She's an outsider to the Canaanites. She's a marginal figure in her society. 
who is who's probably just tolerated. If something happened to Rahab, no one would really care. If something were to happen to Rahab, the other Canaanites would be like, oh, that's just that prostitute. No one, no one really cares about Rahab. You can't get much on the outside, more on the outside than Rahab. But in a wonderful and beautiful and stunning turn of events, she puts her faith in God and lives. She didn't deserve to be saved, but God had mercy on her. And not only did God have mercy on her and spare her life, he brought her into the inside. He brought her into Israel. He brought her into the family. And we know that this is the case because of how the New Testament writers uh, viewed her. 1,600 years later, the Israelites were still talking about her. If you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, you would have what we call the Faith Hall of Fame, what a lot of people call the Faith Hall of Fame. And it recounts stories of such giants of faith like Noah and Moses and David and the prophets, real bigwigs in the Israelite community. And right in the middle of the Faith Hall of Fame, who do you find in verse 31? Rahab. Hebrews 11 verse 31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish and, uh, with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. Here are some of the most respected ancestors of Israel and Rahab is right there. Why is she there? Because of her faithfulness and obedience and submission to God. And in the second chapter of James, Jesus' very own brother is driving home the point that faith without works is dead. He's talking about a living faith. He, he, is, he is writing to believers and saying, this is what living faith is, and this is what living faith looks like. And in order to drive home the point, James uses two illustrations from the Old Testament, two stories. The first one is that of Abraham who once again is like top dog in the Israelite community. He's the first of the Israelites. And he's saying, Abraham had living faith uh, and was, was obedient uh, in how he believed God's promises. And whose story does James use as a second illustration? James 2, verse 25. And in the same way, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? In the eyes of the Israelites, Abraham once again is is top dog. He's the man that God himself established the Israeli covenant with. He's one of the most important men in all of history. And James is putting him on the same page with Rahab. He's holding Rahab up and saying, Rahab had the type of faith and obedience that Abraham had, comparing the two. Rahab has the same caliber of faith and obedience as Abraham. But wait, there's more. You turn to Matthew chapter 1. You'll see a very boring passage of scripture. It's the genealogy of Jesus. All it is is a list of names. 
This is Jesus's family line. It's his family tree. But as you read the names, if you can make it through, it doesn't take you long to come across whose name? Rahab. Rahab was an ancestress to Jesus himself. Rahab was a great, great grandmother uh, many generations before of Jesus himself. Matthew, a Jewish tax collector writing this, who is somewhat of an outsider uh, himself, unashamedly includes Rahab into the family tree. And so you have this cunning Canaanite prostitute who stood condemned under God's law, and she ends up being a member of God's family. This is an outsider who is about as far out of religion as you can possibly be. She, she, is, she is so far out of God's promises as you could possibly get, and she is now enjoying the benefit and the riches of being called a daughter of God. She has been brought into the fold, a woman who has experienced pain and hardship in the effects of a broken world, and she has now been made whole. What redemption, what hope that I can be so far off the deep end and I can be so far uh, away from God and I can be the very object of God's wrath and his grace still stretches far enough to bring me back in. His grace is still enough. His grace is sufficient. His grace goes the extra mile that it needs in order to reel you back in. Perhaps this morning you sit here and you put on the fake smile and you try to, uh, your best to look the part, but you know in your heart that you are an outsider like Rahab. You know you're on the outside. You sit here and your soul groans and you are screaming on the inside, I am so broken. You have no idea what I'm struggling with. You have no idea what I did last night. And in this moment, I want you to learn from Rahab. She knew of God's power and authority and in faith submitted to him in obedience. In this moment, if you are that person, if you know that you are outside of God's family and his promises, then go to him, pray to him, Lord, I know of your power and I know that your power was so strong that it brought Jesus from death to life. But Jesus overcame the grave by your power. And I know that if I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I too will overcome death and I will also be adopted into God's family. I will be an insider by following Jesus. I will be inside of God's family, inside of his promises, inside of his hope, inside of his inheritance. You can sit here and say, I know that I was like Rahab, an outsider who was subject to God's punishment, but now because of Jesus, I am an insider who enjoys God's very presence. You may be here and you think I'm not good enough to be in God's family. And I would say, okay, it's okay. 
Jesus was good enough for you. You may say, I don't know the, the right people or I don't have the social status to be in God's family. And I would say, that's okay. Jesus was the son of God. He, he knows, he knows what you need to know. You may sit here and say, I'm not rich enough. I don't have the, the economic status to be brought into to God's family. And I would say, that's okay. Because Jesus bought your salvation with a price of his blood. You can sit here and count all the ways that you are not qualified. And I would tell you that you're right. And I would tell you that you're right. But that's the beauty of this gospel. This good news is that Jesus is everything that you are not. Every one of your shortcomings, every bit of your weakness, Jesus is all of that on your behalf for you. And that's why you follow him. And that's why you depend on him and lean on him and love him. This is when, when, when you die, hypothetically, if you were to come face to face with God and he would ask you that hypothetical question of why should I let you into heaven? Why should I let you into my eternal presence? Your response should be, you shouldn't because I've done nothing to earn that, but I'm with him. I'm with this guy. And you promised me that if I was with Jesus, you would let me in. And so it's not on my own merit, but on his. And God will look at you and he'll say, you're right. And God will see you. And when he sees you, he won't see your shortcomings. He won't see your weaknesses. He won't see your pain. He'll actually see Jesus. And this is the beauty of the gospel. If you are sitting here and you know that you are outside of God's family, there is hope and it's found in Jesus. And for those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, who have been a part of God's family for a while, there is a very practical point of application in this story uh, that, that we would be negligent to if we didn't address it. I can't imagine that the people of Israel would be very thrilled that Rahab's life was spared. You could think about the, the conversations and the chatter that would occur. There, there was probably ridicule. There was probably scorn. People would ask, who is, who is this lady? Where, where is she going to go? Is she going to take my inheritance? She can't have my room. Right, she, like she's an outsider. I don't really want her her in. Um, you could imagine that parents would probably agonize at the thought of this less than reputable woman being around her their, their children. In their minds, they, there might have been many who have said, "No, this won't this won't do." You know, this woman just doesn't fit. She doesn't belong. She's not like us. I, I have in my own mind of how this is supposed to to work. And how this is supposed to fit in Rahab is just not part of the picture. Unfortunately, this happens far too often in church world today. There is one commentator um, who, who describes, uh, who says that there is a cultural gap between the average church and the folks next door. Because we live in what is now being called a post-Christian society, that gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And so what do we need to do? How do we uh, bridge the gap? What does it take to bring the outsider in? We've already established it. You should know the answer. It's the gospel. That is what bridges the gap. It's Christ and his death. But how on earth are we ever going to get the opportunity to share the gospel or earn the right to tell them about Jesus if we won't even let them through our front door? This would be like a hospital saying that we are all about helping people and curing people. And then when I am sick and dying, I go to them and the hospital is saying, no, actually, could you just like stay outside? In fact, give us some space. Could you, could you step back about 10 feet? Because we like, we just built this place and it's really nice. And frankly, we don't want your germs and your sickness. We don't want you to get other people sick. We don't really want you mingling around us. In fact, could you just get better and then you can come through our doors, right? If that were the case, the hospital's sole purpose in existing would would no longer be there. There's no reason to have a hospital if people can get better going somewhere else. What I'm saying is that the church is not a club, but a refuge for sinners. And the day that we are shooing people away, or asking them to, to change what they're doing, or asking them to conform, to, to be like us. We have lost our purpose of existing here at FAC. We, we cannot expect people to come into these doors and clean themselves up, because they can't. It's impossible. They need Jesus. And we can offer that to them. We can offer them a relationship with Jesus, an encounter with the King that will help them transform, that will transform them. If we want to be a mission church, we cannot reject the outsider or the baggage they may bring. We need to reach out to those who are not like us. And we need to get messy. We need to get uncomfortable. We need to swallow our pride We need to set aside our prejudices and cross boundaries where no other Christians are willing to go. And we need to make FAC a place that allows anyone to walk off the street and feel welcome. If you are sitting here this morning and you feel uncomfortable, you you feel like an outsider, you feel like you don't belong because you're new to this church thing or you're afraid of being found out for who you really are on the inside, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that you are welcome here. You and all the junk that you're going to bring with you. This is a place that you can come and encounter King Jesus and be transformed. And if anybody has a problem with that, let me remind you of the words from Paul. In Ephesians 2, in this passage, Paul is talking to a bunch of insiders. This is what he says. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is not a single person in this room that was not at one point an outsider, an outsider to God's family, but by the precious, sweet, beautiful blood of Jesus, we have been brought in.
There's not a single person in here that doesn't carry that baggage that Christ died for. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help me remember what it was like to be on the outside. Help me remember, Lord, that I was a sinner dangling over the pit of hell itself, but you rescued me and you brought me in. Help me remember that there's still sin that I deal with and wrestle with, Lord, that I still have these desires and these urges to to run away to the outside. Help me to draw closer to you, Lord. I pray, Lord, for even the people that are sitting here this very moment. If there's anybody who does not know you, that they would take the very little knowledge that they now have of you and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And lift up, Lord, our offering to you now as we take it up, Father. I ask that this would be a pleasing uh, work of worship. I pray, Father, that these funds would be used to make Jesus known, to bring the outsider in. We praise you for your goodness, Father. And in your holy name I pray, amen.